Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the book of Micah. This lesson was presented by Mr. Lawrence Jeffrey on May 16th, 2021, during Sunday School. The lesson's title is The Corruption of the People and continues the discussion of Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. Alright, so we're still in Micah chapter 4. We're still going through verses 1 to 5. I'm kind of taking some rabbit trails here and there, but I think it's good to explain uh, the section of Scripture, because you can walk from Genesis to Revelation almost in any passage, and I figure this is a good one to do it, because it shows us, well, about the age that we live in, and the place where we are right now, and where we'll go in the future. It's always good to have messages of hope, right? It's always good to have uh, a battle plan, I suppose you could say. Well, at least an end goal. Not necessarily a battle plan, but where we're going, what our aim is, what our goal is. All right, so let's pray, read our passage, and then we'll discuss more about the things I started to talk about last week, about Jesus being the desire of all the nations. All right, so let's, let's go to God in prayer first. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for uh, your day, Father. We thank you that we could gather as your people to worship you, that you've called us out of the nations, Lord, that you've put uh, the desire of all nations into our hearts, Father, that he is our Savior and our King. And we pray as we read your word and go through it, that you would open our eyes, that we might see our ears to hear and our hearts to understand, Father God, that we might better know you, better know ourselves and how we are to act in the world that you have made, that you've given us uh, regency over, Father. We pray, Lord, that as we read and as we go through this, that we would... Grow in maturity, Father, through the exercise of our discernment between good and evil, as you say, through the author of Hebrews, Father. We pray, Lord, again, that you would use this to conform us to your Son's image. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So, we discussed... Let's re- well first. Let's read our passage, and we'll go back and talk about what we have been discussing. So it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, "Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between uh, many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of of the Lord our God forever and ever. All right. So we've discussed latter days. We've discussed mountains and what it means to be established as the highest of mountains and to be lifted up above the hills. And now we're talking about the peoples flowing to it and 
and the many nations coming and saying, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. See, we're on verse 2 of this section after months and months, seems like. But it's important. So we'll keep going, keep plodding along through our text. And, well, I suppose a slight review might be in order. What, what did we say about mountains? Who remembers? Because we said a lot about mountains. <laughs> what are mountains? Mountains are people. And in this passage specifically, what's up? Temples. Temples. What, what, what about this passage specifically? What's going on here? What does it mean that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains? Temples is probably the closest answer to this one. Go ahead. Yeah, the kingdom, right? But specifically in this passage, it's dealing with the dwelling place of God, right? So temples is probably the closest answer. Because remember what we said, we have to take this section as a unit. And if you read down in verse 5, for all the people walk each in the name of its God, right? Remember all the other gods roundabouts Israel dwelt on mountains as well. And they were great and mighty nations. At this time, remember, um, Israel was seeking help from uh, Egypt and Babylon against Assyria, right? So you have all these powerful nations all around Israel, and they have their own gods, and all their gods live on mountains. So God is saying he's going to humble the gods of all the nations around them, and then he will be established as the chief god. His mountain will be lifted up above all other gods, right? All the mountains of all the other gods roundabouts. Because remember, gods live up in the sky, right? That's part of the important thing. Gods live up, right? And so what, what else did we say about mountains? That they represent the tripartite view of or division of the world, right? You have the heavens, the earth, and the waters under the earth, or the underworld, the nether regions. Right? The roots of the mountains go down into the earth, the mountains, and then the peak of the mountain, all representing that threefold division of the world, where the, God, the dwelling place of the gods is, obviously at the peaks of the mountains, at the tops of the mountains. Gods live up high. So, and this is generally accepted as truth by even the authors of Scripture, right? I mean, what is Satan described as? But the prince of the power of the air, right? So, this is the view of the world that the Bible gives to us. And we should probably take a bit more seriously. And there's a reason, you know what, this actually dovetails nicely into what we're going to be talking about. The view of the world that the Bible and the ancient uh, authors and thinkers and just people in general would have understood, they would have understood um, what's being said about mountains, about trees, about streams, about everything. Because they had a very different view of the world than we do. We've spoken about that extensively as well. We are modernists and materialists. We think that we can know a thing uh, by studying it materially, right? We think we can just study the cells or reproductive cycles or whatever else of the creatures around us, trees included, and now we know what it is, right? We can look at, through our telescopes at stars and other things, plot their courses in the sky, you know, using very fancy mathematical formulas, and we can know exactly what a star is, right? Oh, because it's made of this, or it's made of that, right? And as C.S. Lewis wrote in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he said, well, when Eustace said it, stars are gases burning far away, right? The star that he was talking to said, oh, how did he put it? Oh, my mind just went blank. I can't stand when that happens. Oh, Sarah, you know. Oh, you always know. I should always just come to you. <laughs> Go ahead. Right. He says, that's what a star is made of. That's not 
what a star is, even in your world, right? Yes, very good. Yes, just because we know what something's made of doesn't mean we know what something is in the proper sense of the word is, right? As Bill Clinton said, depends on what your definition of is is. <laughs> That's funny, right? <laughs> but in some senses, that is true because we can talk about like this is a cup of coffee, right? And I can mean that in the material sense. Or I can mean that in the philosophical sense, in the metaphysical sense. And you sit there as a philosopher would and say, what is coffee? You know? <laughs> but that's a real question that could really and truly be asked. And in the ancient world, believe it or not, it seems like they were much deeper thinkers than we were because they will sit and they will ask questions like that. To us, it seems like foolishness, doesn't it? But they actually ask these questions. And the world of the metaphysical and the world of the physical were much closer, right? at least in their minds. The world has not changed, but at least in their heads, our heads, the world has split. Matter of fact, many people deny metaphysical existence entirely, completely, and we live in a world that has been shaped by that. We are at root and at heart materialists because of the age in which we live. That's a problem because, well, getting into our text where it says, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, right? We started to discuss Haggai 2.7, right? And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, is how it is rendered in New King James, King James, and other uh, older manuscript, or well, translations, because the manuscript can be translated a number of different ways, right? It's kind of difficult to translate the Hebrew um, entirely. So Haggai 2.7 in the ESV renders it thusly, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it can be translated that way. It can be translated the other way, that the desire of the nations, that men will come to the desire of the nations. And when rendered that way, when understood in that light, it's a messianic prophecy. Right? Well, this it clearly is a messianic prophecy, no matter what you do with it. But this is mentioning the Messiah specifically and calling him the desire of all nations. Now, the reason we said that's controversial is because of the implications of these things, right? how these things end up shaking out. Hmm? Yeah, you like the pun, right? Good. <laughs> All right, so, but uh, in truth, the, the uh, as we said, as I started to say last week, as Reformed folks, we like to think that If someone doesn't have the Bible, if it doesn't come verbatim from Scripture, right? As Christ, or we say it this way, better yet, Christianity is 100% true, right? And every other religion and every other philosophy is 100% false, right? That's a thought that I know many, many people hold. As a matter of fact, when I said that last week, I saw a bunch of nods. <laughs> Because it sounds so good and so right. You know, I've heard people say, um, even so far, like go so far as to say that non-believers can't even have self-sacrificial love, right? I've heard that expressed. But I do believe that reality bears out that that's not the case. I mean, think of, well, all those people who put their lives on the line for others, you know, on a daily basis, let alone a mother or grandmother or father, 
laying his life down for his children, you know, in a fire or uh, whatever it would be, shielding the body of their own child is, you know, a paternal or maternal instinct that everyone possesses, you know, and that is very self-sacrificial. So getting into the realm of the metaphysics, though, in the, to the realm of ideas is where it becomes much more difficult, right? It becomes much harder. Because what does God have in common with Odin or Zeus or any of the pagan gods, right? Well, as Lewis, I believe, or Tolkien, one of them, said, uh, all these myths, all these um, older myths have what he called splinters of truth, and they do, so much so that we said the apostle Paul can quote a, the hymn to Zeus talking about God himself, right? Talking about Yahweh, as even some of your own poets have said, right, Paul says. So, it is not the case that Christianity is 100% true and everything else is 100% false. It is the case that Christianity is 100% true and everything else has splinters of truth. Right? And I read you a quote by Augustine, and I'll read it again now just to get us caught up and get that put in your head again. Right? <clears throat> Augustine said, If philosophers have said aught that is true and in harmony with our faith, we are not not only to shrink from it, but to claim it for our own use from those who have unlawful possession of it. Right? Because, as has been said so often, that, God, that all truth is God's truth. Right? Now, the difficulty of this is, and where the controversy comes in, is to look at anything outside of Christian faith with respect, with, that's uh, probably not the right word to use, but meeting people where they are, I suppose, is hard. Okay? Looking at something, have you ever gotten into an argument before, and the person you're arguing with, you agree with some points that they make, but you're so caught up in the moment that you're just shutting down everything they say. Yeah, has that ever happened? Once, just once. <laughs> oh, that's 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 just something that happens a lot, and that's that's something that we do quite often, just as human beings, I think, you know. But being able to meet people where they are at is is, is something that is is quite difficult. Um, and to acknowledge that there's truth in. Buddhism or uh, Taoism or Islam or whatever else is a hard thing to say, right? Does it have all the truth? No. No. Is it a perverted form of truth? Yes. Yes, it is. But the greatest lies have truth buried, or mostly true, actually, and just, like, you know, twisted, right? So it's our job as Christians is to untwist these truths, to redeem these truths, right? To, as as uh, Augustine put it, claim them for ourselves and put them to use. Right? That's what the church has always done up to the modern period, unfortunately. We've taken Aristotle, right? I mean, matter of fact, our view of the well, our def well, the way that we define our faith. The way that we define God, if you read any of the um, uh, books on the nature of God that we have, any systematic theologies and the like, when they speak about God, they're using Aristotelian logic. You know, and this comes from the scholastic period and everything else, right? Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. We should be doing that because those things are true. Well, you know, the way that Aristotle reasoned was true. I mean, Augustine himself said, as a Platonist, that he knew certain things about, as a matter of fact, most ancients that come from, you know, from the ancient church, that come out of uh, 
the period. I mean, you have guys like Justin Martyr, Saint, all the way through to St. Augustine and beyond. Those who were disciples of Plato thought that Plato was a Christian. He had to have been a believer. He, well, he had to have had contact. Well, I shouldn't say Christian. They wouldn't have used that terminology uh, because Plato's time period was, oh, I don't know, 200 years after Solomon. He's that old. Right? But they would have figured that he had contact with uh, Israel. He had to have read the law and studied the law. right? That's what they thought because how close he was to biblical truth, the framework that the the worldview, I should say it that way, I suppose, that he held was so close to scriptural truth. And as Augustine said, you know, uh, in, the, in the beginning was the word, the logos. He's like, that I knew. The word was with God. That I knew. And the word was God. That I knew. And the word became flesh. That I didn't know, is how he put it, you know. So, he understood that... Uh, that there was truth. There was things that can be gained from these people. Now, we have a problem in our day, right? Well, we, in our day, as men, just in general, not we, like, personally, but just men in general, um, faith is something to be mocked, no matter what faith it is, right? Because there is no God. There is no, there's nothing it's just this material world that we live in. Right? That's the overarching view of the world that most people have. They might think maybe there's something. Maybe. At most, men are weak agnostics. Right? But generally speaking, they reject um, any sort of metaphysical claim. Atheism is running rampant, right? is we're taught it from where this big in schools, right? Now, the problem with that is that Jesus is the desire of the nations. So men go through what we call cognitive dissidence, right? Where we hold two competing ideas in our head that war with each other two contradictory ideas. We say that the world is solely material, but yet we have meaning, we have purpose, we have love matters, you know? What's up? We have a mind. Yeah, we have a mind, right? But they think they can map the mind and, you know, and perhaps reproduce it in a form of a machine, right? It's part of that cognitive dissonance. However, all I was doing, going through this, studying for this, to find some very interesting things. I found one thing that was fascinating and disturbing all at the same time. There is a group of young people, a large group of young people, that take the Harry Potter books and use them as sacred texts. Oh. That's surprising? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, right? See, like I said, faiths are something to be mocked, right? Now, why would anyone do that? Why do you think someone would do something like that? Because they know deep inside that there is truth to be found. There is yeah. There is a reason for everything. Right. But, what, 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 but why would they take books like Harry Potter? A world set in magic and make-believe. Because there's no, they, they, don't have to, they don't have to look at their sin. They don't have to be you know, judged. Okay, that's as a Christian, but why would they do that, though? They find it fascinating. Just that? Because well, no, one element. There are splinters of truth in it, but, but, but what's going on? All right, they're not just that, right? There's a growing movement of what we call the neo-pagans, right? Where men are actually actually trying to worship Thor and Odin and Sif and all the Nordic gods again. Why is that on having a resurgence? Because they see that there's something beyond the physical world. They recognize it. 
and now they want to tap into it. Exactly. Right, there is something, yes. Yes, both those are are true, are good answers. Go ahead. Can you boil it down to like the difference between supernatural? You can, but I don't know if I would say Harry Potter books delve into the supernatural per se, the way that we define supernatural. I would think the word that Anthony chose is better, metaphysical, right? Because the interesting thing about myths, all myths, is they, are, they enter into the realm of what we call realism. Now, that sounds funny, right? Like the Harry Potter books are real, right? <laughs> they are real in, in, a, in a different sense than the way we normally use that word. Realism as opposed to nominalism, right? Real, go ahead. Like what? Well, they're they're dealing with like I didn't read much of the Harry Potter, but that's one series I haven't read. Yeah, I've read everything. (laughs) The the idea of there being some kind of power, some kind of uh, ability, some kind of spiritual aspect that they're tapping into—that is a—that is real. Yes. But that's not what I meant by uh, when I say they're real. What I mean is when you read myths, right, when you read um, oh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, when the Aeneid, the, um, the Harry Potter books, Tolkien's works, when you read them, they are in the realm of the transcendentals, right? They're dealing with the excellences in their pure form. Right? They're dealing with things like valor, honor, sacrifice, all these things that can't be seen and can't be felt and can't be touched, but are uh, metaphysical truths, things that are real, ideals. They're dealing in, in the realm of ideals, right? So that's how they're able to take these books as sacred texts, not in the sense of there was there really is some guy named Harry Potter, not in the sense of fact, but in the sense of truth. Truth and fact are two very different things, mm-hmm. right? Now, Christianity is a myth. Oh, shock, right? That's one thing that's another thing that's hard to say. But it's true. Christianity is myth. It's a true myth in the factual sense of the word, but it still deals with realms of transcendentals. Matter of fact, it defines the realms of transcendentals. God does. All these things come from the character and nature of God, right? Go ahead. Define the word myth, just so we are Good. Let's do that. I have a good definition for you right here. So we're all on the same page. I should pull this up anyways. I was going to read this before. So let's, let's, let me get it up real quick. All right. Hopefully this is the right one. Okay. Now. Let's use, I'll give you a couple definitions. All right. Myth is a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people or explaining a natural or social phenomenon, and typically involving supernatural beings or events. And then they add this, but, all right, a widely held but false belief or idea, right? A misrepresentation of the truth. Oh, that's interesting, right? This is just how it's generally defined as. Right? If you take the first sense of it, it's, it's, it's so. The second sense, not necessarily. 
Now, what I want to read here, this is um, this man named Kilby. He says this. And why these men and women and young people are turning to Harry Potter and other things, right? Rejecting the faith of their fathers and fathers and turning themselves towards other things, right? So a myth is indeed to be defined by its very power to convey essence rather than outward fact, reality rather than semblance, the genuine rather than the accidental. It is the difference between the factual announcement of a wedding and the ineluctable joys actually incorporated in the event. All right? Think about that for, for just a second. It's, it's able to convey the um, reality rather than the semblance, right? The essence rather than the outward fact, right? It's able to convey the genuine as opposed to the accidental. Accidental, in that sense, being a specific instance of it in, as, as, we, as we live, right? And I like his, his, uh, his, uh, the analogy that he draws between a, the announcement of a wedding, the factual announcement of a wedding, and the joys that come with that wedding, right? That are experienced at, at that place. Go ahead. That fits hand in hand with the desire of nature. That's exactly correct. That's, that's what everyone desires, right? Oh, I hate that song so much, but... The, that song that says we were meant for so much more, you know that one? <laughs> but it's the truth, right? It is absolutely the case that we are, you know, that we have that desire. The problem is, how do we argue with people, right? How do we, how do we, how do, we do apologetics? Well, you have the William Lake, Crane Camp, and others, right, who just sit there with fact, 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 right? And then you have the Van Tillians that just try to shred ideas and, and shallow ones at that, you know. Uh, we try to rip apart people's materialistic worldview, which is so easy to do. It's so simple, right? And then, or you have um, people that don't argue at all, like Ray Comfort and others, you know, just... Swing straight into the spiritual, as he says, using the law to pound people with their sin because everyone thinks they're a good person. Uh, but there's so much more, you know. That men actually do have a desire. There's a reason that people are going to witchcraft and paganism and even Harry Potter, you know. There's a reason for that. These people aren't stupid. They're desiring things that even the church has lost, right? I'll talk about something else uh, later as well because it goes hand in glove with the section of Micah that talks about uh, verse 4. It says, They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. But... You know what, as a matter of fact, I'll just run down this real quick, just to, and we'll go back through it as we go through it, you know. And, but he says, these men are desiring, the nations are desiring to go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, to learn his ways, right, and to, so that they can walk in his paths. And the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Right? We talked about this being the church, the nations coming to the church and learning about God from the church, not just anything about God, but learning the law of God from, from the church. I mean, what was the Great Commission? Teach everyone to observe all the things that Christ commanded. Right? So what we're seeing here in our passage is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And he shall judge between many peoples, and they shall decide disputes. I'm sorry, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. So the judgments that God renders through his law 
settle disputes between strong, militaristic, you know, mighty nations. And what do they do? They beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So you go from strong militaristic societies to an agrarian vision of the world. Something that kills to something that gives life. And they don't even learn war anymore as a result of learning from the law of God. And now they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. Now, this is a result of this peace that's being spoken of, right? There's no war. Every man now is able to enjoy the fruits of his own produce. Why do wars rage? Well, because men desire more than their own produce. They desire their own produce and the produce of others. Why are we in the Middle East? We're protecting our interests, right? American interests. How did our interests get in the Middle East? (laughs) Oh, I mean that, seriously, in a very real sense, right? I mean, why did we go to Afghanistan? They're fighting for our freedoms. How did my freedom get in Afghanistan? You know, in in truth, like, (laughs) I I, I mean that in, in a very sincere way, you know, but that's what, that's, those are the excuses that are used, right? for us to wage war. I can't remember who said it, but during the Treaty of Versailles after World War I, I almost said two, thank you. <laughs> after World War I, <laughs> yes, uh, at the end of that war, when they're going through and they're de- debating the treaty, someone, and I wish I could remember, I have to go back and i got to find it again, told them, the great nations that were assembled there, that, well, England, Mr. Churchill, you're going to have to give this and this and this and this, right? And Mr. Wilson, President Wilson, you're going to have to give up this and this and this and this. And whomever else was there, you're going to have to give up these things in order for there to be this peace. If this is the war to end all wars, then you have to give up these things for there to be a lasting peace. And no one was interested in giving up any of those things, just so well, then you don't want peace. What you want is more war. And what happened? But 20 years later, another great war, right? The war to end all wars ended up with another war that killed nearly as many people. Another world war, right? Because they weren't willing to give up their own holdings. Well, I mean, how did England end up with Uh, India and Hong Kong and every other colony that it had. Canada is still a colony, by the way. That's interesting, right? Weird, but true. Like, the Queen of England is Canada's queen. Still a colony. How did that happen? Well, they had their own interests at heart, right? They weren't following the law of God. They were pursuing their own national interests. We ended up with the Philippines and... Um, Puerto Rico, which we still have, and the Virgin Islands, which we still have, and Guam and other places, right? How did we end up with those? Matter of fact, we ended up with California and Texas and other places. It's very weird as well. I mean, those are other countries. How did, how did we end up with them? You know, we were pursuing our own interests. Manifest destiny, we called it. As a matter of fact, we lied our way into war to obtain the Philippines and Guam and etc. Uh, when nations learn from the law of God, they're, satis- they're satisfied with their with what they have. Right now, the reason I bring this part up and come into a close here is because it also goes from the national level to the personal level. Right? Why do we bicker and quarrel and fight with people? Uh, because we're not satisfied with our with what we have, right? We're not satisfied with our own produce. We covet, we desire, right? As, as, uh, as James says, why are there striving? Why is there strife among you? Right? Because you want and you do not have. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not, uh, and you, when you do ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own lusts, right? To spend it on your own appetites. Now, 
when we are able to sit under our own vine and under our own fig tree in peace. We're satisfied with our own produce. Now, the problem that people see with this is this will be the death of advancement and innovation and things like this, right? If, if everyone is satisfied with them, their own modest living, then what cause do we have to advance, right? I've spoken to many people about this. Go ahead. I, I, I hesitate to even say this. Go ahead. Let's get back to the, I mean, to, to go along with what you're saying, we've got to get back to that main principle of chaos and peace. Okay. Right? Uh, the, the chaos is caused because of the fractured image of God with, within the people, right? And that's also why you have people searching after that uh, Harry Potter uh, theme of whatever, you know, because they're trying to get back to that peace that has been uh, done away with because of the chaos in their life, because of the sin in their life. Maybe I'm simplifying that too much, but then when you're talking about sitting under your own fig tree, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that ultimately what we really do want? We want that peace, but the only way we're going to obtain that peace is through the peace of God. Because once we truly follow the Ten Commandments, love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, that's what's going to be the important thing. Not that's no. the advantage. Yes and no. No, it's all right. No, because the neo, I mean, the neo pagans, right, of our day, the things that they value, the gods that they worship, are very warlike. True. And there are truths in war, right? Valor is one. Bravery, you know, these, these things are are part of the um, the real, right? The ideals that are good. Right? But why is there war to begin with? You, you even brought that up. Yes, yes. But my point is, like, when you, what you said, like, what, why do we need to advance? Why do we need to? Or, well, we will and we do because we have to create. That's part of our nature. Now, the, the, the joy and the, the beauty of creation, when not served with self-interest, you're able to pursue uh, knowledge for knowledge's sake. You're able to pursue beauty for beauty's sake. You're able to pursue, um, you know, whatever it is, whatever facets or excellence that you want to pursue that moves you to pursue it for its own sake instead of self-interest. And when, well, I mean, what's that? I agree totally under the right context. Under this context, under when you're sitting under your own vine and you're under your own fig tree. That frees you up. If you're content, you're now able to build cathedrals. You're now able to um, do great things because you're pursuing those excellences for their own sake. And what is the pursuit of those excellences? What is beauty? What is uh, knowledge? What, is, what, what are these things? These things are God himself. He is these things, right? So understood rightly, when you pursue beauty... For beauty's sake, that is the very heart and pursuit of God, right? When seen, as you said, rightly under the ultimate worship, it is the ultimate worship. Why did they build? Why was the flying buttress created, right? In cathedrals, they have the flying buttresses. Why did they do that? That was new. That was innovative at the time. They were able to build these magnificent structures because they wanted. More glass. They wanted more light in. They wanted to put stained glass up. And walls aren't holding up the roof. Now these buttresses are holding up the roof. And it creates a sense of uh, transcendence, actually, when you walk in, right? You, you're like walking into the heavenlies. And they did this intentionally. All of those things were intentional because they weren't doing it for self-interest. As a matter of fact, we don't even know who built a lot of these things. They did it because they were pursuing God himself, right? They did great things, you know. They didn't build things to decay, to fall down, like uh, things with ridiculous facades on them that say Trump across the top. You know what I mean? They weren't pursuing their own. They were pursuing, um, it doesn't have to be Trump, it could be anything. 
Marriott, Hilton, whatever, anything with their names across. They're not building a tower to make a name for themselves as those in Babel did. They're building for God's sake. Right? So they built great, beautiful things. So, yes, there will be advancement. There will be innovation. When we are satisfied, when our swollen appetites are diminished, right? when we're able to take our temptations and beat them down, and that frees us up to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, right? and to pursue these things for his sake. Right? Go ahead. You mentioned the, uh, the cathedrals. Hmm. You've mentioned that before. I did. Example. It's a great example because we don't build them anymore. Do we have an example today or more recently where man has built something to honor God and not himself? Yes, but I'm not going to diminish anybody's work. However, we don't have this mind anymore, the mind that I'm talking about. You know? We, don't, we are moderns. We don't see the world the way that these people see the world, or saw the world, I should say. And I think that needs to be recovered That was my point, getting into what we just talked about. The church has lost this, right? That's why people are turning to Harry Potter books. They're turning away from the faith of their fathers because they're finding something more real in Harry Potter books than they are in the messages that are coming out of the pulpits and churches, right? Men don't care about facts deep down. They want truth, right? They want to understand valor. They want to understand uh, beauty. They want to understand goodness. You know what I mean? They want to understand evil, even. In the, we don't think that there is such thing as evil. I mean, my goodness, right? We, we have a play on, well, I don't know if it's on Broadway anymore, but you know, I remember Wicked, right? Misunderstood. There's no evil, right? Everyone is just misunderstood. As a matter of fact, most of the time, the most evil characters are heroes in our movies. There's a problem with that. And men know that deep, deep down. You know? We don't, we're not giving people... The, why do you think Marvel movies? Movies about superheroes, right? Comic books are the most popular because they present a world where there are these truths, right? There's good, there is evil, there's uh, valor, there is justice. There are, there are, these things are real in this world, right? And men desire that. Because these, you know what? These things are real, but we don't give that to people anymore. We give people facts. It's a problem. You know, we need to give people truth, fulfill that need that every man has for these excellences, these virtues, these truths, right? Virtue is a lost word, you know? And then now it's just being taken in. It's a power game, right? We speak speak about this a lot. Men use words uh, like good, like evil, like these words are still common, right? But they're used for the purposes of gaining power, for their own, for people's own self-interest. That's this whole, um, I don't know, Black Lives Matter, all this other stuff, movement's all about. They're taking words, twisting them for their own uses instead of giving them the real work, you know, the truth that these words represent. Right? We need to give people the truth that these words represent. As a matter of fact, how will people know that we're Jesus' disciples? by the love that we have for one another, right? Now, that's, that's a self-sacrificial love, right? That's not a, that's not a platitude or anything else. You know, that's a, that's, a, that's a self-sacrificial love that we're to have for one another. That's a love that's willing to lay its life down, right? 
that's the kind of love that we're to have for one another. And that's how people know, will know that we're God's disciples, or Jesus' disciples. I'm running long now. Um, we'll have to pick this up, up next week. I was hoping to not only get through this, but through other things as well. But I think this is important, you know, and it is controversial. And we do need to hear these things, not just about, not just about um, love or whatever else, but all of the virtues, the things that Paul tells us to think about, right? In Philippians, he says, think on these things. If it, the word excellence that he uses there, all right, you know, I'll just go there real quick. And then I'll, we'll close. If I can, if I can. There we go. Philippians 4, right? Okay. So, in the latter part of verse 8, he gives you a list of virtues. And he says, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That includes in the pagan myths, right? But the word excellence there, that's trans- the word that we have translated as excellence, means virtue. If there are any virtue in anything, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, right? So we need to think about the transcendentals, those, those, those metaphysical truths, and give them to people because that's what people desire at heart. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do know that Christ is the desire of all the nations. And we pray, Lord God, that we, well, as his people, would be conformed to his image. That these virtues that, uh, that our hearts burn for would be the characteristics of our lives, Father God that our lives would be modeled after these, that our appetites would be small, that our appetites would shrink, Lord, that we might live this virtuous life that you've given to us, this blessed life, this good life, Father God, the life that, well, the life that you meant us to lead, and that we might pursue you for your sake, Father God, wholeheartedly and with reckless abandon, Father, that we might see the world change, a world that will be filled with these virtues, a world that will be filled with goodness and beauty and truth, Father God, so that men don't have to turn to ancient myths or new ones, but they can turn to Zion, your holy mountain, to come and learn about your law, that that we would present you in a manner that is well, desirable to the nations. Jesus is the desire of the nations. And we pray we would make that true in our lives, Father, that men might see it. We pray this in Christ's name.